Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 129. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkenu, our Father, our King. Lord, we turn to you because we know that you are the source of all life. You are the source of all truth. We come to you because we are hungry for your word and we seek to understand it so that we can put it into practice in our lives, implement it, put feet to our faith. Continue, Lord, to strengthen us as we go along on this journey of studying your words and uh, availing yourselves of the, the, the truths that you have um, uh, preserved for us. Uh, help us by your Holy Spirit to, um, to un- not just to understand, uh, but to have a heart to want to ob- be obedient to you, to serve you, to to demonstrate uh, what it means to be a follower of Messiah, to um, continue to partner with you to build up your kingdom. Lord, we um, serve the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and um, we are proud to name the name of Yeshua, Jesus, as our Lord. So thank you for this um, commission taking this good news around the world, uh, sharing with those who would uh, that we would encounter, uh, give us holy boldness, help us to not be ashamed, uh, give us divine um, uh, appointments as we uh, seek to share our, our witness and our testimony with those around us. Continue to protect us and raise us up. Um, give us uh, sight beyond sight. Give us hope beyond hope. We'll continue to praise you and bless you and give you the thanks and the praise for all of these wonderful things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at a congregation in Thornton, Colorado, called The Harvest, Kehilatunval, Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at www.graftedin.com. Right now, I've got our website pulled up, and we'd be delighted to have you join us in person. But if you're uncomfortable um, getting out and about because of the COVID situation, then we've got uh, streaming services available, as you can see on my screen right now. Pastor Mark is starting to shift gears towards the um, uh, uh, festival of, of Purim, which is just right around the corner, um, just next week, uh, really, well, at the end of this week, or uh, depending on when you're listening to this recording, so around the 25th, 26th of February of this year. So we're going to start looking at that in Mark, Pastor Mark's sermons here, Purim and Providence. And so I invite you to um, uh, log on to graftedin.com's website or just visit it. You don't have to log into anything, but um, visit our website and uh, avail yourself of the streaming services, uh, the YouTube video that's uploaded there. 
Also, um, you can find me online at tetetora.com. That's my own personal Torah teaching website. That's at www.tetzetorah.com. Tetetora.com. And as you can see right now on my screen from the homepage, there's a cluster of links that allows you to um, uh, uh, re- uh, access the resources that I've made available. Most of it's written format, but a lot of it these days is turning into both iTunes audio and uh, YouTube video. So um, please feel free to uh, uh, click around and and um, read through and, and, and listen uh, through and watch all the content that I got available there. And I also have a, um, a YouTube channel, as I uh, alluded to, and you can find me at YouTube at uh, youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetsa Torah Ministries, all one phrase there. And uh, I invite you to go to my channel and browse around, take a look at all the videos that I upload. I'm I'm quite busy when it comes to YouTube. I've, I'm uploading something every, nearly every day, six days a week, I'm uploading some form of YouTube video, and then uh, that seventh day, I'm uploading something by way of iTunes podcast or something. Basically, seven days a week, I'm uploading something somewhere by way of some type of media. So if you go to my YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe so you can join the family. Make sure you hit the little bell for notifications so that you can be alerted as to when I'm uploading videos. Make sure you hit the little thumbs up because I really hope you like my content. I'm, I'm quite sure you're going to like it. I'm, I'm pretty confident uh, that you're going to like the content that I have. I'm, I'm really small channel. You can see by my view numbers that I'm a pretty small channel, but I think you'll like what I have to offer. And then lastly, um, share the content with others around you. Hit the little share button that you normally see when you're watching a video. There's like a little arrow that points off to the right side where you can share it with uh, on your social media channels and things like that, okay? That would really be uh, great. And then lastly, real quick, since these are the live internet studies, let me just give you some brief announcements and uh, details. If you'd like to join us, again, go to my website at tatesatora.com and um, uh, from the home page, there's a little link that says live in and it studies. It's usually at the very, very top. This is episode number 129, as I mentioned. The meeting date for all of our studies are usually on Saturday evening. So the meeting date for today is February 20th, 2021 for the USA date for the recording. And we always meet on Saturday evenings from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So just... Um, uh, um, Set your clock against that time zone and you'll be able to meet with us. Uh, For the hour-long study, we break it up into these segments. The first 30-minute segment is given over to Romans 14 on plug, feasts and fasts and food. Oh my, we're in part 47 and we're just plugging along, uh, chugging along uh, page by page and... uh, We'll just keep going until we finish. And then the second 30-minute segment is given over to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity, Paper 2, Yahweh and Yeshua, Part 64. It's a kind of a um, Trinity study where we... Um, we just look at different scriptures, we look, look, look at different concepts, we examine alternate ways of viewing different passages and discuss those. Um, I'd really love to get your feedback. This is one of the um, parts of, the, of my study that generates a lot of comments on my YouTube videos, especially from people who disagree with the Trinity model and, and don't believe that God can be broken up into three separate persons. So I always get a lot of thumbs downs on my videos, people who saying you're speaking nonsense, you're speaking heresy, or, or uh, I just disagree with your logic flow, whatever, whatever. Um, I love healthy uh, conversation and back and forth, um, and uh, uh, so I'm fine with that as long as it's done um, 
respectfully and uh you know um with uh you know not uh don't don't put any bad words in my in my youtube videos comments there so anyway um we also watch a, a little youtube video uh, short video, talking like three to five minutes long, and tonight we'll be watching a video on Exodus 19, 3 through 6, entitled, Holiness as Expressed Through Set-Apartness. So, hope you're able to stick around toward near the end of our study when we watch that video. As always, if you'd like to join us, you're going to need access to Skype. Uh, Skype is free, the account is free, the app is free, so just install it on your computer if you don't already have it. If not, you don't even really need Skype app, you can join us via Skype as long as you have the group link. And to get the group link, if you're on the same page that I'm looking at right now, in the same paragraph right there, you'll notice that right here, the word email there is actually a link. So if you click that, it'll send me an email. If you're using your desktop or laptop computer, it'll send me, you, uh, you'll launch your email app and uh, you'll be able to send me an email. Otherwise, go to that, go to my website at tatesatour.com and scroll all the way down to the very bottom of my website to that black section that you see on my screen right now. That, that's the section, the footer, and from there there's a little button. Which you can see right now I've got a little red arrow pointing that says email button. That's my uh, email link. Click that, send me an email, say, Ariel, please send me the Skype link. I'd like to join um, your live Skype class so I can uh, participate live each week. That's the link to send it to me, and I'll be more than happy to send and share the Skype link with you. It's not exclusive except to people who are in the Skype class. And as always... The Lord is blessing you to be able to bless others, and you'd like to bless my ministry. This is an uh, an easy way to do it. There's a little yellow donate button there. If you click that, you can use PayPal and a credit card or bank account, and you can send me um, uh, money. You can support me this way, and I would be uh, just uh, delighted uh, to to be the recipient of your gift giving. So I always like to say it's um, it's such a blessing to receive, but Yeshua said it's more blessed to give. Than to receive Paul quoting Yeshua. So um, on that note, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's turn now. It's about nine or ten minutes into the study. Let's turn now to uh, Romans 14, unplugged, feasts and fasts and food. Oh my. This is a study that's um, ongoing, and by, by ongoing, I also mean that it's updated as needed. So um, if you notice, if you scroll down into the study, you'll notice by the date right here that I updated this just less than a week ago um, as I'm finding new information that I think is relevant to understand. What we're working our way through now is something that should have been put together if I were a better writer, if I were um, someone who's just a little bit more skilled at what I do, then I probably would have had all this put together at the beginning. But you'll have to pardon my limitations. I'm doing the best I can. But in my uh, um, uh, uh, interest to get the information out to you, I decided to go back and add more information in the introduction, background, and historical audience. So what we're doing is we're working our way through uh, this section in my study, the background and historical information, and we've worked our way down through all of these lengthy quotes, and we're, we're finally parked at one final quote from uh, Dr. Mark Nanos, one of my favorite historians, Jewish historian, and uh, this is going to show up in my conclusions, so let me just scroll all the way down to the conclusion section. So for tonight, let's finish reading this. I don't think we'll finish this, but we'll start here reading down through some of the conclusions of the historical background and appreciating Paul's audience. And um, I think it's self-explanatory, so I'll just jump in and start reading. These are my own words. 
In the end, the exact amount of Jewish and Christian social, religious, and communal involvement in ancient Rome may remain a mystery until we are able to, as I like to think, one day have a long-awaited conversation with Priscilla and Aquila, right? As I put the word smile in my commentary. Wouldn't that be nice someday uh, as we'll be able to um, uh, chat with them? Why did I choose them? Because they were present in the Roman communities, in the Roman church, if you want to call it that, the Roman synagogue, I like to call it. Um, and, you know, Paul didn't even, wasn't even there. He's writing to a group of people, and he's not there at the moment. But he's probably writing from Corinth, if I'm correct. And um, uh, so he he's writing there to this group of people, so he maybe not have a first-hand knowledge of what they were going through. Um, but uh, Priscilla and Aquila did, so it would be nice to be able to chat with him someday. So I go on to say, But until that time, as Bible students and histori- as historians, we can in fact gain a more well-rounded approximation of the situation by doing our due diligence when it comes to historical research, both Christian as well as secular. And this goes really without saying, but I have to mention it anyway. When you're doing your research, it's my understanding that it's better to include Christian resources first, but then as as it pertains to any particular field of study such as history or geography or language or um, you know medicine or whatever field that is related to the biblical topic that you're looking at, uh, I think it's helpful to broaden your research to include uh, people within those fields of study, people who are experts in that particular area. So if you're studying history, feel free to broaden your research to include non-Christian but yet ancient historians, like I'm doing with this with Dr. Mark Nanos, who is himself a Jewish historian. He's not a Christian historian, um, but I don't think that that should be detrimental when it comes to research when it comes to trying to figure out what was the world like in Paul's day. So again, I would do the same thing with when it came to language. If I was trying to um, uh, better understand the language uh, options in Paul's day, you know, the ancient Greek, the ancient Hebrew, the ancient Aramaic, the ancient Latin, and things like that, then um, shouldn't it make sense that I should turn to language specialists in their field? regardless of whether or not they're Christian or whatever uh, religious background they come from, I shouldn't really uh, discriminate against people based on a religion is the point I'm trying to make. I get a little bit, a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit of pushback on this because I've been using Dr. Nanos, who's a Jewish historian, but he's not Christian. And some people write into me and say, why would you want to get the perspective of a non-Christian theologian? Well, we do the same thing with Josephus, right? Was Josephus Christian? As far as I can tell, he wasn't. Um, you know, we listen to Pliny the Younger and things like that. We, we, you know, we we allow Tacitus to speak to us. Um, all of our history shouldn't come from Christians. Is the point I'm trying to say. Um, some historians have a lot of, of information that they can share with us, regardless of their Christian perspective or not. So that's all I'm trying to say. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. Um, just know that this is the perspective I'm taking. Uh, I go on to say, indeed, as a conclusion to this section on background and historical audience, Nanos poses this timely and important question with regards to properly appreciating the historical issues as they apply to Romans. Listen to this question. Um, this is just one question out of many that he likes to pose. As a as a as a Jewish historian, he asks this question: Would the gent- would the Christian Gentiles of Rome have sought association with the synagogue as the righteous Gentiles? This phrase "righteous Gentiles" is a term that you do find in rabbinic writings, and it refers to Gentiles who are seeking 
to associate with Israel's God, seeking to associate with Israel's people and the scriptures and promises of Israel, so much so that many of these Gentiles eventually go on to become proselytes to Judaism. But one need not even go that far to be able to see these types of Gentiles in the Bible. For instance, the first one that pops in my head is Cornelius in, in Acts chapter um, 9. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 10. And if you recall from the story, Cornelius was not a Jew, but he is someone that's spoken of highly by the Jewish communities. He prays to the one God of Israel, and as far as I can tell, at the time that the uh, that Luke records the details, um, he's not even a believer in Messiah Yeshua yet. And and though God hears his prayers, he's well spoken of by the Jewish community, as I mentioned. Peter meets with him, and eventually he makes a profession of faith and become and gets baptized and joins the 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 community of faith. So the point is, from a Jewish perspective, because he's not converted to Judaism, he's not a convert, he's not a proselyte, he would be considered a God-fearer. That's a technical term, but he falls under the category of a righteous Gentile. A Gentile who is seeking the righteousness that's offered exclusively through a belief in God, a monotheistic affirmation of God as the one true God of Israel and of the nations eventually, and particularly goes on to even uh, pursue... um, uh, uh, certain amounts of Torah obedience, although there were some that were that were there were still some restrictions going on in in the earlier uh, first century and things like that. But isn't that an interesting question? Would these Gentiles of Rome have sought association with the synagogue as the righteous Gentiles, or would they have turned away? And if so, why? Why would they have wanted to be included in uh, uh, Jewish uh, communal social settings? Um, I go on to say that I imagine his answer might surprise some, and in his book, The Mystery of Romans, he makes this particular statement. So let's read some quote. And this is a book, let me go ahead and flash a picture of uh, of, um, of the book right now real quick on the screen for those of you who are watching this video on YouTube. You can see this picture. Those of you who are in my live study class right now, you can't see anything. Uh, but um, um, the, the Mystery of Romans, uh, uh, Fortress Press, I believe, uh, it's, it's over 20 years old. It's one of uh, Nanos' first books, uh, among many that he would go on to write, as he's trying to gain a better appreciation and understanding of Jewish and Gentile relations in the first century, as it pertains to someone of Jewish background and why that would be important to someone as a Jew, such as himself. So here's what he has to say. This is uh, Mark Nano's quote. Josephus indicated that Julius Caesar's decree forbid the assembly of foreign religious societies other than Jewish ones in the city of Rome, and according to Suetonius, Caesar had dissolved all guilds except those of ancient foundation. The first sentence is something that's pretty much agreed upon in most Christian circles that um, Caesar's degree of limiting how, what type of religious societies and organizations could practice freely in ancient Rome uh, without certain restrictions. Most Christian authors agree with that particular assessment, and I think that's important to set the tone for understanding when we're trying to uh, put our mind back into could the Christianities of Paul's day had been could have could they have legitimately expressed their religion so openly in ancient Roman society? Yes, Rome allowed for uh, religions other. I mean, basically, as far as I can ascertain, they did allow for just about any religious group to uh, have an expression of their religion. 
so long as that religious group, and here's the important part, continued to pay the um, uh, as Roman citizens and slaves and things like that, continued to pay the expected, um, uh, what do we say, devotion to the imperial cult. So there was an expected, mandated um, uh, service to, imp- to imperial matters as relates to recognizing the emperor as a god, um, paying certain taxes to the emperor, uh, 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 giving attention to certain cultic activities, the Saturnalia and the uh, religious activities, um, certain uh, religious festivals that Rome uh, mandated, um, the temple services, the prostitution of, of girls, um, all of that was kind of tied up into this uh, um, expectation for Roman uh, citizens and uh, people who lived in Rome, regardless of if you had citizenship or not. Uh, there was a, this kind of ex- – it was mandated in many cases, but you could get some ex- exemptions according to certain um, uh, recognition of, of people groups. And so that's kind of what we're talking about. And most Christians agree with, with that particular um, uh, background perspective. Let's continue. Nano states, how would Christians outside associating with the synagogues obtain the right to congregate for fellowship and worship even in their own homes or tenement rooms unless they petition for designation as a private club? So if the Christianities, for example, the Gentile Christians wanted to separate themselves completely from Judaism and yet still have the right to um, worship and to be exempt to some degree from the imperial cult mandated emperor worship and the um, the uh, uh, complete with again all of its pagan involvement at the temple level, the pagan temples, uh, the, you know the, the mandated prostitution um, and things like that. We already know that theologically speaking, this would have been problematic for Christians, especially as we understand Paul's explaining to the Gentiles that their allegiance now is to one God and to one Messiah, and their fellowship is not with pagan temples and idolatry anymore, but they are to make a break from all of that. And therefore, at the same time, Paul definitely doesn't want the Gentile Christians to simply wholesale convert to Judaism and take that ethnic status or take that legal status so that they could fall underneath those um, exemptions that were already being afforded to the Judaisms. So what that does is it puts the Gentile Christians between a rock and a hard place. Paul says, on the one hand, don't convert. I mean, how convenient it would be if you did, because if you did, then all that you believe in religiously, you know, one God, one Messiah, uh, relevancy of scriptures and new calendar and things like that, all of this would be, would be easy for you to, um, express in your, in your religious life, because Judaism has already been given those particular, um, freedoms and exemptions. They're already designated as a private club or whatever, an ancient foundation. But Paul says, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to convert to Judaism, to becoming legally legally recognized Jews. On the other hand, you need to make a decisive break from your pagan lifestyles. You need to make a break from the imperial cult. The emperor is not a god, and you should not worship him as a god. He is not your messiah. And therefore, you need to um, stop attending the pagan ceremonies and the, um, the, the, you know, all of that... um, 
pageantry and all the Saturnalia and all of the the the, the um the uh um, the worship of of the stars and the uh the the what do we call it the um the, the stoicheia and all that stuff right give that all, all up as well because you are now citizens of the one true god of heaven and uh, followers of the one true messiah so they are in a rock and a hurt place so that's why we have to have these types of discussions so that we can um appreciate that Rome didn't really just allow any old religion to express themselves and do whatever they wanted to do, however they wanted to do it. Not like today. Not like today, people. Get that out of your head. That's anachronistic to think, oh, yeah, they were, they, these were Christians, right? They weren't Jews. They weren't practicing Judaism. They were practicing Christianity. They could do whatever they wanted as Christians. I don't think so. All right. Every really good his, every every historian who's worth his title as an historian recognizes some of the things that I'm talking about. Maybe not in all the details because I'm not a historian. I'm relying on the shoulders. I'm standing on the shoulders of, of other historians. But let me continue. This is Nanos. He says, "Quote: Not only do we not have any evidence of such an effort, right? The Christians applying for private clubs, private club status, so that they can practice their Christian religion away from Judaism, but away from the imperial coat." Not only do we have not have any evidence of such an effort, but we also have good reason to believe that they did not pursue such a course as they found the authority of the synagogue sufficient and they probably did not even consider the question. Is that kind of beginning to make sense as well? Why would they even think that they needed to make a break from Judaism? The, the history tells us that the first century Christians considered themselves as an offshoot of Judaism. Uh, the book of uh, the book of Acts and the, the, some of the apostolic writings uh, go on to describe um, the Christianity of the first century as a sect known as the Way, meaning they were an offshoot of a Jewish religion. They were practicing a, a subset of Judaism, a form of Judaism. The the, the religion that was First, that we know as first century Christianity overlapped so much so with, with first century Judaism that one of the primary differences between them was simply the ethnicity of the people groups. But other than that, the religion itself was cross-cultural Judaism. I say cross-cultural, meaning there were certain um, uh, things that uh, Gentiles were allowed to do uh, as righteous Gentiles uh, without going the full uh, st uh, step of becoming uh, uh, converting to Judaism. Now, um, let me see. There's somewhere along the lines, there's a, um, a quote. Let me, let me click on this uh, footnote. Let me see if that's the one. Yeah, this is the footnote I want to read. I apologize for having to get so lengthy, but okay, so let me read that last sentence again so they can read the footnote and, and help you understand why it makes sense. So Nanos proposes, not only do we not have any evidence of such an effort, right? Gentiles seeking to make a break from their Jewish uh, cradle. We don't have them doing it. This was, I mean, it did happen eventually, don't get me wrong. Christianity became the state religion. Christianity broke from from Judaism. Um, it became the official religion of Rome. Uh, you know, this is, of course, after Nero's persecution and all that stuff, his martyring martyring of the of the Christians. But eventually, Constantine. You'll know, fast forward a couple hundred years, and Constantine's going to declare Christianity as the state religion. Um, and so Christianity is really the, the break between the church and synagogue is is concrete. It's set in stone at some point in time, but Earlier, very earlier on, we're still talking with even before the destruction of the temple, there's no such break, nor does there seem to be an effort from the Christianities or Paul to make such a break. So we don't have any evidence of this effort, but we do have 
We have good reason to believe that they did not pursue such a course as they found the authority of the synagogue sufficient, and they probably didn't even consider the, the idea or the question of, hey, should we make a break? Now, let me pull in a quote, uh, a um, footnote. Normally, I don't read the footnotes, but this time this one's significant. This is a footnote from Mark Nanos's book himself, the one that we're reading, the, the uh, Mystery to Romans. Let me read this footnote. It's a bit lengthy, but it's relevant. Regarding the legal status, see the discussions of Lampe, right? This is a, another author, uh, and he's got a book that he put together. I'm not even going to try to pretend to pronounce the German there, the, the title. But um, here's a quote from that particular work. So this is one historian quoting another historian trying to gain a better understanding of what's going on in, in Paul's day. The, fract the fractionation of Roman Christianity concerning the private rather than public nature of the property and possessions during the first and second centuries, hence the lack of evidence for legal status suggested, for lack of evidence, that the Christian groups had organized themselves as collegia tenorium or collegia funeratitia, trying to get my Latin uh, correct there, um, this other author goes on to say, the hypothesis has long been abandoned. So what I'm what Nanos is trying to alert us to the fact is that um, in Christian um, research, it has been previously assumed that the Christian groups did try to um, seek some form of legitimacy outside and beyond Jewish synagogue authority, uh, uh, authority and kind of set up their own um, uh, private club, as it were. And there were some designations that were um, ex that were possibly available to them: the Collegia Tenuarium, Tenu Tenu E. Tin, I don't. I'm tin u eorum, I think it, or collegia funeratitia. These are two of the um, uh, designations that they could have applied for, but. Um, that hypothesis is kind of outdated now. We've uh, Historians have now come to realize, Christian ones included, that there's no evidence that supports that, um, that they did such a thing. So we've abandoned that particular perspective because it's, um, it's weak and uh, it lacks evidence. Indeed, the, that the groups of Christians were not legalized as corpora or collegia, right, is one of the more certain statements which we can make. <laughs> that statement alone should kind of surprise many of you. So we know that they weren't separate. Is the point? I'm that's the whole point of, of this little quote here. But this other author continues. Um, N.T. Wright, uh, and here's a quote from uh, Dr. Wright himself, says that there's no evidence that they appealed to private club status in their defense. So again, one historian quoting more historians, although N.T. Wright happens to be a um, Christian historian that uh, uh, Nanos is quoting. Uh, Dr. James D. Jun, who just recently passed away last year, uh, he is a Christian historian. He writes in his uh, commentary to Romans, quote, the Christians were not yet clearly distinguished from the wider Jewish community. Insofar as they had any legal status, they would meet presumably as a collegium or under the auspices of a synagogue. So understanding what we're talking about here, we have historians on both sides of the camp now, both Christian and non-Christian, who are coming to the, the uh, accepted fact that the Christians in the first century were not operating separately from the from a legal status perspective for in Rome's eyes, they were not operating legally separate from the Jewish synagogues. Meaning, all this is saying is that it disagrees with what we read about in the Bible already. And Paul confesses this, that the Christianities of the first century were a sect of Judaism, plain and simple. And that's something that, unfortunately, many um, Christian pastors are uncomfortable with admitting. 
at least along this point in time. They, they want to somehow give uh, the Gentile Christianity some, le- some legal status outside of their Jewish um, uh, foundation that gives them the um, a support of claiming that they don't have to follow after Torah or, or follow uh, Judaism the way Jews do or something to that effect. But un- unfortunately, the research just it demonstrates quite the opposite. And I've given you at least three or four resources now, besides you know Nanos and Dunn and Wright and uh, uh, the the, the Limpier or whatever the, the the gentleman's name that I mentioned earlier. Um, so uh, this footnote goes on to conclude uh, here the fact that Paul never speaks of the Christians in Rome as a church, right? The the, the ecclesia, uh, the Church of Rome, right? He doesn't even use that phrase in his letter. May well be significant especially since it is so out of keeping with Paul's usual practice like he does in the rest of his letters. And we've got some references to um, some of the other letters where Paul normally addresses the communities as the church of mm, the church of mm, right in Corinth, Philippians, uh, Thessalonica, Galatians, things like that, the church at or the church in. But in Romans, he doesn't even use the word church of or ecclesia of something like that. Um, at least he doesn't call them the church of Rome. I think he does use the word ecclesia maybe once or twice in the letter, but uh, I don't want to look at that right now. Okay, so that's the uh, footnote that I wanted to uh, point out to you. Let's keep reading down through uh, Nanos' quote in his book. This is from uh, The Mystery of Romans. He says, quote, Further, even if they sought and were granted the rights of assembly of a private club, right? Let's just assume that they did for a moment. This would not have extended to the free practice of their religion without harm or interference, i.e. they would still not have had the right to observe the Sabbath, right? And why wouldn't they have? Because as Roman citizens who are not under the exemption that was afforded to the Judaisms, right, then... Um, Romans who are not Jews, uh, even if they practiced the religion of Judaism like the God-fearing Gentiles did or the righteous Gentiles did, the proselytes would be different because they were fully um, legally Jewish. But without that legal Jewish status, then the seventh-day Sabbath, that is Saturday on our calendar, would have been another work day for your average Gentile Roman citizen, particularly even so much so for the slaves, right? Slaves didn't just have the opportunity to say, you know what? We're Christians, and we're a sect of Judaism, so we're going to keep a seventh-day Sabbath. We're going to take a break from that day. We don't want to work. Um, how would those Roman masters have allowed, or even <laughs> how would they have uh, of, of received the, their, their slaves who suddenly became Christians who wanted to take a good work day off? That's not going to work. So go back and look at, look, look at your history again, and you'll find that what I'm saying is actually true, uh, particularly when it came to slaves, but even also when it came to um, freedmen. Remember, uh, ancient Rome practiced a caste system. Right? They had a class system, a class system. We don't have that in America, so we're a little bit removed from that. But there are some countries in the world who still practice class and caste systems, like India. I'm trying to think of off the top of my head. Uh, ancient uh, Korea did in the past. They don't anymore, but they used to have a class system, caste system. Well, ancient Rome had a class slash slash caste system. And so we had, you know, you had freedmen, you had the, 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 the slaves, we had the, 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 um, the plebes, we had the, 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 the barbarians, we had the, you know, certain, all these different, um, uh, caste groups that fell into different slots, socially speaking, and you only had certain rights depending on who you were. And, uh, being able to have, uh, Sabbath freedom wouldn't have been something that was just automatically granted to you unless you were a legally recognized Jew, which remember, Paul said, don't do it, don't convert. 
All right, so uh, Nanus continues. These Christians, these Gentile Christians, also would not have been free from serving in civic cults, like I talked about earlier, uh, um, uh, allegiance to the imperial worship, um, nor to the right to refrain from the mandatory practice of declaring Caesar as their god. Um, Jews were exempt from this practice only by the institution of a special substitutionary sacrifice. So notice this, notice this. Please, people, listen up, listen up, because this is actually very important. The Jews in the first century, at least in Rome, had an exemption from the Roman authorities of declaring Caesar as their god based on the fact that Jews were using their own temple to uh, to actually sacrifice a substitution to sacrifice on behalf of Caesar, not the same as declaring Caesar as God, but they were saying, okay, we're going to have this little sacrifice on the side, you know, how much of that... Um, was well uh, uh, the detail known to the people? You know, is uh, we don't know. We don't have all the details, but part of this shows up in in, in uh, ancient Jewish writings as well. So it's it's corroborated from the other side as well. But the Jewish people were required to do this little substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of Caesar, not declaring him as a god, but kind of this little kind of um, you know, uh, will 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 recognize his authority. With, the, with our little sacrifice, but we're still sacrificing to God. In our minds and our hearts, we know we're sacrificing to God. This is his temple. We're not going to, if we were to sacrifice to Caesar as a God in our own temple, I mean, that's blasphemy. That's, that's, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, 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 treason. That's, that's mutiny against God himself. You know, we just, we're not going to do that as Jews. So the Jews were given an exemption from uh, declaring and, and worshiping at the civil cults and you know mandatory um, uh, temple worship and things like that at the at the uh, pagan cults, based on this little substitutionary sacrifice. But how did the Christians fit in? Please answer that question for me. The Christians were still required to have that mandatory declaration of Caesar as their god. Oh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul doesn't want them to do that. There's only one God. His name is Hashem. Right? He is your Lord, and Yeshua is your Messiah. So don't do that. Oh, but don't don't convert to Judaism either. You see how this is beginning to make a little bit more sense if we begin to allow history to speak to this uh, situation. Um, these uh, Christian Gentiles would um, uh, uh, would also not have had the exclusion of military service and other public responsibilities with their concomitant idolatry. So all of this leads to a painting a picture of it was very difficult for the um, Christianities in Paul's day to um, uh, have any sort of legitimacy, legally speaking, separate from their Jewish association. It was a good thing to be associated with the synagogue because as Gentiles who were worshiping the God of Israel, the Messiah of Israel, the Holy Spirit of Israel, and rooted in in the scripture of Israel and the promises given to Israel and the patriarchs, right? Notice all of the Israel focus there that I keep bringing up. It was a good thing, not a bad thing. It was a good thing for the first century Gentile Christianity to be rooted and connected to the Judaisms of that day because there was a lot of freedom to worship the way they, that theologically, the way that Paul would have agreed with. Remember, and I say this over and over again, there was no other legitimate form of religious practice that Paul would have endorsed in the first century other than some form of Judaism, right? Paul would definitely not would not have embraced any form of paganism or idolatry 
or any pantheon of gods, any Greek Hellenized, you know, Zeus worship, um, any um, Mars Hill theology, uh, any um, you know, any form of if there was any Buddhism in that day, which I'm not aware of it. I think Buddhism as a religion was in existence, but um, we don't read about it in the scriptures that I'm aware of. So Paul wouldn't have embraced that. Any Confucianism, he wouldn't have embraced that. We certainly know there wasn't any Islam at the time of Paul's uh, writing, right? Islam wasn't around yet, uh, so he wouldn't have embraced it even if it was. There was no Catholicism yet. Um, to what extent he would have embraced it, I don't know, but it, it's a moot point because there wasn't anything like that. There was no Mormonism. There was no Jehovah's Witnesses, no Seventh-day Adventists. Um, none of that was available to as a religious choice in Paul's day. What did Paul have to work with? The various forms of Judaism, and that's it. That's it. And the other. It was, that was kind of the, the binary way of viewing the world from Paul's perspective. Perspective. Okay, you're either a, a, a for, you're either a monotheistic believer in the God of Israel and uh, the Messiah of Israel and the Scriptures of, of Israel and the promises given to Israel, or you're outside of the scope of truth. And so um, that's a good place for us to stop and contemplate these these concepts. Let me read this one paragraph, uh, and then we'll close this part of our study tonight. And then next week we'll finish, I believe we will be able to finish this next week, one more lengthy quote from Nanos. But let me finish this last uh, paragraph here, and that'll bring this part of our study to a close. There's good reason then, historically, to suggest that Paul's instructions in Romans may have been directly to Gentile Christians who were in need of being reminded, quote-unquote, boldly of their obligation to, quote-unquote, subordinate themselves to the governing authorities of the synagogues to which they were attached, including such matters as obedience to the operative halakhot, that is, kind of ways of walking, the halakhot for defining proper behavior for righteous Gentiles, i.e. the apostolic decree, the no-hide commandments, or whatever you want to call them there, they didn't really have a name yet, and the payment of taxes and other community obligations. So, in plain language, the Gentile Christianities of Paul's day were not really defined separate and against other than, there wasn't yet the, uh, the othering that hadn't really taken place yet in Paul's day. Paul saw the Gentile Christians as um, connected and practicing, indeed, I, I, Nanos calls it a form of Judaism. I'm going to add the phrase uh, kind of tr- cross-cultural Judaism, because it was a form of Judaism that wasn't completely identical to their Jewish counterparts. In other words, Paul was not championing physical circumcision for the Gentiles. We know that's true. Therefore, the form of Judaism that he was um, wanting his Gentiles to practice didn't have every element equal um, with the Jewish versions uh, on the other side of the tracks. Um, it was a, it was a form of Judaism. It was a a, a subset of Judaism, right? A, a, a cult. Uh, um, I'm sorry. Um, uh, um, what do we say? A, 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 a sect of Judaism. I mean, these are the terminologies that, that the Bible already uses. Uh, but it was not 100% full-blown the same type of Judaism that, for instance, Paul as an ethnic Jew practice. A little bit different. That's the point I'm trying to make. And Nanos concludes, and we'll finish our study with this uh, statement tonight. Nanos states, that is, Paul and the Christian Jews and Gentiles of Rome both understood their communities as part of the Jewish communities when Paul wrote Romans with Christian Gentiles identified as righteous Gentiles, quote-unquote. Again, this is kind of a technical term that does show up in, in um, later rabbinic writings, 
this this idea of righteous Gentile, meaning you've not yet made the conversion to Judaism, thus you're not a proselyte. Because if you were a proselyte, we wouldn't call you Gentile anymore. There's no such thing as righteous Jew, at least from the perspective of someone who converted. Uh, righteous Gentile means, like Cornelius, you have not chosen you have chosen not to convert to Judaism. You're are to the status of um uh, uh, legal status of Jew. You are practicing the same religion that we are practicing, although kind of in a stripped down version, a watered down or a miniaturized version of it. As a Gentile, that's what I mean by a righteous Gentile. And Nanos concludes by saying these righteous Gentiles who are now worshiping in the midst of Israel in fulfillment of the eschatological and gathering of the nations. And we have a quote from uh, chapter 15, verses 5 through 12 of Romans. And instead of going in that, into that tonight, I'm going to start right there next week. I'm going to show you how that if we turn to Romans 14, indeed Romans 15, um, if we turn to Romans 15 and start looking at the bookend of Paul's letter, uh, starting at verse 5 and working our way down through uh, verse probably 13. What what did Nano say? Uh, Nano said 5 through 12. Um, if we look at these, so 12 or 13, and I'll start with this next week, so we'll do a little bit of exegetical work. We're going to find, you can go back and read this, your homework assignment, right? Go back and read Romans 15, 5 through 12, just that little section. And you're going to find that from the context, Paul envisions Gentiles worshiping God with Jews as one family, not separate from one another, not in their own little compartmentalized communities. You Jews over on one side, you Christians over on the other side, don't meet in the middle. No, <laughs> worshiping the one God together. So we're going to kind of flesh that out a little bit next week. But that'll do it for the Romans 14 study. Let me close the tab so I can free up some resources. We're also going to eventually work our way to, I've got um, David Stern's uh, Jewish New Testament commentary uh, uh, scanned to my computer. Uh, a pastor friend of mine uh, took his uh, commentary apart uh, right down the middle and scanned it into his computer and shared a copy with me. I already have a copy of it, but he made it available so you can, uh, so that I could scan it as a PDF document. And there's a quote from, uh, are there some um, uh, comments from the book of Acts, the last chapter that Dr. Stern brings that I want to eventually share with you as regards um, Jews and Gentiles meeting together that we eventually will get to one of these days. There's also a quote from uh, Tim Haig's uh, Matthew commentary that I have on my computer right now that you can see on my screen that deals with um, uh, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and how it pertains to Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. I want to get to that eventually as well one of these days. Um, uh, haven't gotten to that yet. And then lastly... Um, there's a, a, like I said, there's this little video on, uh, uh, Paul, the Jewish theologian. I want to get to that again. One of these days, these are just in my, uh, uh, bookmarks here for this particular study, but we'll do that sometime. But for now, let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're going to be looking at these um, particular verses tonight. Uh, we're talking about this idea that God, the father is the one that we as believers fellowship with. At the same time, and that's in 1 John, at the same time, in 1 Corinthians, uh, it's the Son of God, Jesus himself, the Messiah, whom we have fellowship with. And then lastly, in two passages out of, uh, one out of 2 Corinthians, another out of Philippians, it is the Holy Spirit that we as believers have 
fellowship with. So we can begin to understand that the Bible is trying to say that we have fellowship with God, but as it pertains to the persons of God in his personhood. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's who we have fellowship with. And it's all centered on this this common English word fellowship, but we're going to see the Greek word uh, koin, koinonia, I believe, or koinonia. I need to see where the stress is at. Uh, it's the same Greek word that's used. So let's just jump right into it. All right. So the first passage is 1 John 1, 3. And um, John's a great writer. He's actually pulling in um, information that's already familiar to us. He likes to use his ideas of in the beginning and things like that. That's what we had from the beginning, right? He's very kind of grandiose in the way he writes. I really love his his, his style of writing. But in, uh, so I mean, that's what you get in verse one of this particular part of his letter. But when you drop down to verse three, he writes to his uh, readership there. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. Now he's in context he must be talking about Yeshua because he's talking about being seen. The life was made manifest to us. We've seen it and testify it to proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. This language is a messianic language, talking about the Messiah, you know, being manifest to us, eternal life. Uh, we saw it, right, uh, was with the Father. Just to recall the book of John, chapter 1, the you know, that that prologue there with, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. All that type of language is being um, repeated here once again. And it's within that context uh, with Yeshua in mind, this is a verse that actually has fellowship of father and son, but we're just going to look at father tonight for this verse. Uh, John says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have, here's our word, fellowship, which in the Greek right there, koinonion, and we'll look at the root word here in a bit, um, fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, again, in this verse, we could have just used this for both Father and Son, like the table only shows Father, but actually this carries over to the Son as well. Uh, I could just put this same reference over there if I were putting this table together. But we're using Karm's table, and they didn't include it in the Son side. But really it is. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. The only point I'm trying to bring out for this first point is it's with the Father. And it's this Greek phrase, sorry, this Greek word right here, koinonia, which most Christians have heard before. There are even whole fellowships named after that. Koinonia house, koinonia fellowship, whatever, things like that. Koinonia fellowship is kind of a um, redundancy of terms, right? Because koinonia means fellowship. But koinonia house. So um, that's what we're uh, beginning to look at. Let's look, look at the second passage. In the list, it's 1 Corinthians 1, 9. And so as we scroll down, uh, let me pull up this particular verse right here. Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called, what? Into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if we pull up the Greek over on this uh, right side of the page, pistos hophaos di u ekletheta eis koinonian tu huiu autu, Jesu Christu tu kuriu hemon. What's the word I want you to uh, listen for? Fellowship. Koinonion. Fellowship of his son. Koinonion to huiu out to Jesu Christu. It's really the fellowship of his son, uh, Jesus Christ. And so 
as you can see already, it's the same Greek word, koinonion. It's actually Strong's number 2842, as we saw earlier. Strong's 2842. So fellowship, fellowship, same word. And again, we could have used this we could have used the first passage out of John to say that we have fellowship with the Son, because we see as, uh, the Son is mentioned there. But Paul simply says this time we have fellowship with his Son. Now, do you suppose that Paul didn't think we had fellowship with the Father when he wrote this verse? Well, obviously not. Paul understands that. But the point we're simply trying to bring up is that he wrote the verse in such a way that the main subject is fellowship of the Son. That's the whole point I'm trying to bring up. It's not to the exclusion of fellowship with the Father. Paul obviously understands that fellowship with the Son includes fellowship with the Father. It's within the scope of fellowship with God the Father that we have fellowship with the Son. But the point I'm trying to bring up is that it's exclusive in this verse that we're saying fellowship of the Son. That's the whole point we're trying to make. All right, let's move to the second patch that's concerning the Son. Uh, I'm sorry, the second uh, the, the the next uh, round, uh, the next in our call in our table here, this would be now let's turn to the Holy Spirit. Second uh, Corinthians, this is Paul writing again, Second Corinthians 13, 14. Let's scroll down to that verse. It's the very end right here. Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There we have our word right there again, fellowship. Let's just read the Greek. This is one of the more beloved, well-known passages that many people like to quote. This is actually what I call a triadic passage. What does triadic mean? It refers to a passage or a part of the Bible that mentions the, the all persons of God in one breath, in one writing, in one uh um, uh, group together. Uh, does this mean that God is a trinity? Not absolutely but it does reference all three and no more than three is the point I'm trying to say. Sometimes we have verses that um, only mention two, such as the John passage. We have the Father mentioned and we have the Son mentioned, and there's no mention of the Holy Spirit here. Does this? So this verse, and the point I'm trying to bring up, just listen for a moment. In First John, this doesn't prove that God is a, is, is a duality any more than it disproves that he's a trinity. It's simply a passage that only mentions two of the three persons. Thus, it's not a triadic passage. Uh, it's just a passage that only mentions two, two, two of the persons. But in 2 Corinthians, and sometimes only have one person mentioned, one or two. Uh, the point, however, is in first in 2 Corinthians, this is actually a triadic. We have three and no more than three. We know that God is not more than three because if we if God were more than three, we would have at least some passage where we had four or five or six or seven or eight. You know, the, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the fill in the blank for whatever person you think God also is an extension of. But we don't have anything like that in the Bible. We have three, no more, but sometimes we have less that are showing up. So I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean. The Greek over here on the right side of the page says, Hey, charis tu kuriu Jesu Christu, kai he agape tu theu, kai he koinonia tu hagiu penumatas metapanton hemon. And then in some variants, we have the word Amen, showing up at the very end. And so the word I want you to see is fellowship here. It's uh, the same Greek writer, right word over here, Strong's number 2842, koinonia, just like we've been talking about before. So now we have, though, this time it's the koinonia to hagio penumitas. What is that? It's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Notice he doesn't say the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he doesn't say the fellowship of God. He says the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Is Paul confused? Doesn't Paul realize that he already wrote to the Corinthians earlier and he says it's the fellowship of his son? Right? Fellowship of his son. Why would he turn around and say fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Ah, because Paul understands that it's one fellowship. It's one God. It's three persons, but it's one God who's expressing himself in three persons. And we can have fellowship with these persons. We can have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can have the grace of God. We can have the grace of the Holy Spirit. We can have the love of God. We can have the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can have the love of the Holy Spirit. And we can have the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can have the fellowship of God. And we can have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It all works together. That's the point I'm trying to make. Don't cherry pick your verses and say, well, this verse says this and this verse says that. Therefore, because they don't say the exact same things, we must be dealing with one God in different persons, or I'm sorry, one God in different forms, such as uh, the Old Testament spoke of just one God without persons, but the New Testament suddenly has them broken up into personhoods. Personhood. What you're doing is you're failing to understand the Bible as a whole from the big picture, the progressive revelatory nature of how God is the one God of the Old Testament. That's true, but he begins to reveal himself progressively to humankind, so much so that when we finally get to the pages of the Apostolic Scriptures, we have the fullest revelation of God the Father through the person of the Son, the Incarnation, Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. So let's look at our last passage here, and then we'll turn to our liturgy. In Philippians 2, the very first verse, uh, Paul writing once again, he says, So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any, and this version in ESV says, participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and he leaves off with a, a, a hanging quote there. I don't have to read the rest of the passage for you to understand where he's going. The point I'm trying to make is this particular version, ESV says, participation in the Spirit. But if we look over at the Greek, it's, sorry, it's koinonia. It's koinonia, right? Koinonia panumatos. So it's the same Greek word, Strong's number 2842, that we've been looking at all along. Why ESV choose participation instead of um, changing it to, say, uh, 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 fellowship? I'm not sure why, and I suppose if I click on uh, this uh, verse real quick, uh, just to check the other parallel pass versions of the Bible, to see if we have um, uh, uh, fellowship showing up in the NIV. Any um, sharing in the Spirit. Uh, New Living Translation. Any fellowship. There we go. We got our fellowship word there. Uh, ESV. We already saw participation. Berean Study Bible. Fellowship. Berean Literal Bible. Fellowship. King James Bible. Fellowship. Uh, New King James Bible. Fellowship. New American Standard Bible. Fellowship. NASB 95 fellowship, right? And you get the, the idea. We can go back and look at all those. So the point is, the word fellowship does show up in many other translations owing to the fact that it is the Greek word that we are already familiar with, which is the koinonia. And that's really just going to help us to understand as we uh, draw the uh, uh, Trinity study to a close tonight that um, uh, God is trying to reveal himself to us. He started with the revelation of who he was as the one God, the one God who created the universe, the creator, the one who brought everything into existence. And, but but as, he, um, as history unfolds before uh, his eyes, 
keeping keeping in mind that he knows the end from the beginning. But as history unfolds, as time marches forward before his very eyes, and he deals with mankind, he progressively revealed more and more of who he was to mankind, particularly to Israel, through the scriptures of Israel and the prophets of Israel and the writings and things like that, to the point that when we finally get to the apostolic scriptures and this time period that we're dealing with right now, we've got the full revelation of God through the Son, the incarnation of God coming to man in the form of a man, in the person of a man who's 100% man, but yet in the mysterious way, still 100% God. And that'll do it for our Trinity study for tonight. Let's turn to our liturgy for tonight, Isaiah chapter 2, and we're going to start developing this. I'm just going to read uh, a few different verses. I'm not going to read all of it tonight. I'll, I'll, I'll build up to it. I'll, I think I'll read like uh, two verses uh, tonight, and then eventually I'm going to read one through four, maybe next week, uh, two through four, three through four next week, and then the final week, the third week, I'll read one through four, all of it. But this is such a great passage uh, as regards um, the question of, does Israel's future include Torah relevance? Well, the answer must be yes, because according to Isaiah, there's a passage that's future-facing, hasn't happened yet, that Isaiah envisions that the Word of God will be emanating from Jerusalem. Indeed, the Torah will be the standard that Israel is using as their form of righteousness. It will go out toward the entire world. All of the nations will actually flow to Jerusalem. This hasn't happened in history yet. It happened in maybe in, in little bits and pieces and kind of foreshadows or or portends or or uh, um um uh what's the what a word I'm looking for? Kind of precursors, right? Where maybe in Solomon's day we had the nations coming to Solomon and, and seeking his wisdom and bringing their riches into uh Solomon's kingdom and things like that. People seeking uh the Lord. Uh, but there's still a future day when all the nations will stream to Israel and the Torah will be going out the other direction. So um let's begin to look at this uh as part of our liturgy. I'm just gonna read verses one and two tonight. And as I mentioned, next week we'll read 3 and 4, and then the week after we'll read 1 through 4. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, starting over here on this side of the page. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And uh, we know this is repeated for us in another prophet. I think it's Hosea, if, I'm, if I remember off the top of my head, um, verbatim uh, nearly. But uh, the point is, this hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened yet. It's still part of the latter days, the future right? Let's read the Hebrew on the right side of the page. The Hebrew says, Hadavar asher chaza yeshayahu ben Amos al Yehuda vi Yerushalayim. Verse 2 says, Vahaya ba'achrit hayamim nachon yiye har beit Adonai berosh heharim venisa migvaot venaharu elive kol hagoyim. And that'll do it for the liturgy from the um, Tanakh, or from the Old Testament section. Let's turn to the book of Galatians and notice how Paul seems to push back against this idea of righteousness as is rooted in the Torah. And it causes us to have to stop and understand how Paul could interact with his Torah as a believer and be so seemingly negative when it comes to the role of Torah in the life of a redeemed person. And it begs the question as to how Paul 
interacted with um, this particular phenomenon in his day. As we encounter it in Galatians chapter 2, we're not going to read all of this. We're just going to read eventually chapters 2 verses 15 through the end of the chapter, which I think is verse 21. But for our... Um, Liturgy, just, let's just read two verses, just 15 and 16, to set the context. Uh, Paul says in verse 15 of chapter 2, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Wow, that's that's kind of heated language right there, Gentile sinners, right? Ethnon homartoloi. All right, and then in verse 16 he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Sounds like he is just leveling a stinging rebuke against Torah observance, doesn't it? Well, as much as we want to read that back into the text, I don't think exactly that's what he's talking about, and we'll look at this on a different day. But for now, let's just read the Greek as part of our liturgy, and then we'll watch the short little video for tonight. Verse 15 in the Greek over on this side of the page says, Heme fuse judaioi kai uk ex ethnon hamartaloi. Verse 16 right there says, de hatiu de kaiutai anthropos ex ergonamu in me diapistios Christu Jesu, kai hemes es Christon usan epistusamen hina dekaiothomen ek pistios Christu, kai uk ex ergonamu hadi ex ergonamu u dekaiothesatai pasa sarx. And that'll be our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video. We'll watch this, and then we'll just close in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah Teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. In a dialogue that establishes the basis of separation, that is, holiness as expressed through set-apartness, Hashem explains to Moshe, Here's what you are to say to the household of Yaakov, to tell the people of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I carried you on the eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will pay careful attention to what I say and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of Kohanim, that is, priests, for me a nation set apart. The idea of being set apart for the purpose of serving the one true living God was to be a central concept in the lives and purposes of the budding nation of Israel. To be sure, in this manner, Hashem would showcase His uniqueness to the surrounding nations through the unique lifestyle of his chosen people. Israel was not chosen for her size, power, or spiritual aptitude. To be sure, she was usually lacking in one or more of these areas. No, she was chosen to be a fishbowl, quote-unquote, nation placed in a key geographical location for the entire world to examine. From this position, Hashem would unfold his wonderful plan of redemption and blessing to the entire earth. With this principle established, we are ready to move on to any particular biblical passage in the Word of God that addresses this subject of being set apart. 
Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to share with the students. Bless us as we continue to go forward in this endeavor to serve you, to be ambassadors of your truth, to carry your great gospel message to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but that means also to around the world, to anyone who would um, listen to uh, the Spirit's call to um, surrender to the one God, the creator of all things, and to his son, Messiah Yeshua, the savior of Israel and of the entire world. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, for that's the only way that we'll be able to take this message in power. Indeed, uh, we need to continually avail ourselves of the Spirit's infilling so that we can continue to be witnesses, so that we can be salt and light in this very, very dark world that we live in. Help us to not be afraid of the pandemic all around us. Help us to not have um, uh, unnecessary worry when it comes to our um, our finances and our our, our job situations and uh, our well-being. How are we going to put food on the table? How are we going to care for our loved ones? How are we going to continue to make a living? Lord, you promised that you would provide for us as your uh, as our uh, uh, heavenly Father. We as your children, Yeshua, you promised you would never leave us nor forsake us. We look to you for our provision. Continue to bless us and heal us and raise us up, protect us as communities, and uh, continue to uh, gather us together as Jews and Gentiles united under the banner of Messiah, declaring your truth and rallying around your word. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory, Bashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>